0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Amy Ware. This morning's scripture will be from John 4, verses 46 through 54. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that, the, that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's Thanks, Thanks, Amy. Good morning, everybody. Um, listen, if if I sense that anybody's getting tired, I'm going to play that stand-up, sit-down game that Jordan introduced earlier. And so just be on your toes. Be ready for that. Um, If I've not been able to meet you yet, my name is Blake Rogers. I serve as one of the pastors here uh, at our church and uh, just so love our church family and have the honor of, of closing out our John's series. And so if you've been with us over the last couple weeks, you, you know that we, we've broken John chapter four up into three different sermons, and it's been really fun. It's been really encouraging to my faith. And it is my hope that today uh, that, we will be, that we will continue to be encouraged in our faith collectively uh, together. You know, one of the greatest rites of passages in the American experiment and experience is really turning 16 years old Going down and getting your driver's license. Who looked forward to that day? Did y'all look forward to that day? This is a big, big day, right? This day represents so much freedom and autonomy. In, in a lot of ways, it's one of the steps that you take as you are becoming an adult, right? But the interesting thing about going and your license is that it's really not all that comfortable, is it? Who was nervous whenever they took that test? Who had to take it multiple times? Um, you don't have to say that if you don't want to. But if you want to, feel free to say that. It's all good here. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of a nerve-wracking experience because, you know, the task that you are seeking to have the legal authority to do is actually a very dangerous thing. Not only is, is, is your life on the line every time you get behind the wheel, but also all of the people that you pass their lives are on the line every time you pass them. It's quite an amazing thing how comfortable we get when driving our vehicles, right? But you remember how it was. You, you studied up for this test. You nervously, you know, practice at some local parking lot or, or something like that. I grew up out on a farm, and if my dad, mom and dad are watching online today, this is a confession, but I guess it's also just, it is what it is. My, my granddad had this Dodge Ram and I would just take it around the farm before they would get home from work. My grandma didn't mind. And, and I learned even as a 13 year old, how to maneuver a vehicle, I was not on the road. Um, but you remember that experience, right? And then you get your license and it's such a big day. And you text all your friends, you know, a picture of your license. At least that's what they do now, I would imagine. That's not what we did back in, back, even when I was getting my license and you're just so so excited and then you get on the road for the first time and you're like oh my goodness your hands are 10 and 2 your seat is like super upright you've got the radio on because you want to be cool but not too loud to be distracting right you're really focused on the road in front of you and then what you know a couple months go by six months goes by everything seems to become a little more normal and then you don't have your ten and two stance. You have one arm on the wheel. You lean your seat back a little bit, right? And you turn your music so loud that it's actually inconceivable that you could think about anything else while being in the vehicle. Any one handed drivers out there? Go ahead and put two. Okay, just go ahead and put two. No, not two. Um it, you become comfortable. Th- this is getting at what I believe is innate to us as human beings, right? We have an ability to do very dangerous things at times with a casual comfortability, right? We become casually familiar with the things that happen. And it's not just driving, right? It's, there are many things like this. There are many things that create a nervousness within us, whether it's Turning in your first report at your new big job or crafting the first big deal for the firm or preaching your first sermon. Well, you know, Tim Keller actually says that the first 200 sermons of a preacher's preaching life are bad, okay? So I'm well within that. So just, just to set your expectations appropriately here. Um, but I have gotten more comfortable over the time. But it it, it doesn't take long before familiarity kicks in. But you know, there are some things within the human experiment and experience that, that never actually grow familiar. Things that never actually become casual. For instance, pain, death, and suffering. We experience these things all the time. And life is actually full of difficulties and challenges. And yet, we go through them. And as we go through them, we are left in these existential moments questioning the big things about what life is all about. Demographers, they estimate that over 101 billion people have lived and died on this earth. 101 billion. Billion people have lived and died on this earth. You know what that means? Dying is far more familiar to the human experiment than driving, right? You've only been driving vehicles, you know, in, in mass over the last 50, 60, 70 years, but certainly that was an idea introduced in the last century. And yet death is one of those things that never, ever becomes comfortable. You've heard. We've had over 27 million cases of the coronavirus in the U.S. And you begin to think that, really, this is just another way of life. This is just what it means to live in our day. And you begin to go about your day normally. And, and much of that can be good, trusting in the Lord, moving forward without fear. But then your parents get the virus, which actually happened to my parents not too long ago. And then you begin to say, Oof, that which I was familiar with now feels uncomfortably close to me right now. And we begin to cry out, why God? and how long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face from me? Deliver me from this painful existence. Well, our passage today reflects this reality of our human condition. And in our passage, we're given insight into a very real account of a real father who has a real child who is sick unto death and it is all but comfortable for him and so today we're going to look at our passage really through four points we're going to look at the people the place the person and the purpose now i didn't mean to go all southern Baptist on you with the alliteration but i guess the lord just ordained it in that regard and so first let's look at the people leading up to this moment leading up to this story wait a minute i gotta turn on this sorry brandon Y'all give a shout out to Brandon real quick. He fixes our AV issues. Am I good? I can't see it right here. Maybe, maybe that would be helpful at some point. Sorry. What do we got? Okay, the people place. Can you get on here, Brandon? Okay, sweet. Otherwise, I will have no idea how to move forward um, with this thing. And so Jesus, you know, he, he had just gone through uh, Samaria, and, we, and Jason spent two sermons talking about that moment in, in this text in this chapter of John's gospel, where Jesus is in Samaria, and he actually has really great success there, right? Uh, ironically, he had much more success among those people who were looked down upon. And Jason talked about all the reasons they were looked down upon. They had no true, pure history, and people just looked down on them. They had no heritage, no inheritance, and so they were looked down upon. But His own people often rejected him. The people who had strong history, a well-documented history, these were the people who would actually reject Jesus. And I think there's something important for us as a church, as a fairly new church, that we need to understand about this. We must be careful in Atlanta, Georgia, in Buckhead, as a church, not to connect elitism to Christianity. That never actually works, right? Christianity never thrives in an elitist culture, historically speaking. It thrives among people who continually confess their weakness and know that they are fully dependent on God. But in John uh, chapter 4 and verse 44, uh, we see this. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And in a similar account, in Matthew chapter 13, we see uh, Matthew's explanation of why Jesus is rejected in Nazareth. Verse 53, read with me. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man Get this wisdom and these mighty works. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all of his sisters with us? Where did this man get all of these things? And then verse 57 says, And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and, his, and in his own household. You know, the problem with these people was that they had a casual familiarity with Jesus. He had, he had become far too commonplace to them for them to ever think about worshiping him, to ever think about bowing down to his lordship. This is the carpenter's son. Wait, we know this guy. We're familiar with him. We, his mother is called Mary and his sisters are here among us. We're not going to worship this man. He's, he's just like us. He's commonplace. He's casual. But they were saying this in front of the Lord of all hosts. You know, this represents a class of people, right? Right. Uh, this this may represent one of the responses that actually is present in this room. Maybe you grew up in church, right? Maybe, maybe you just kind of go through the motions. And listen, I'm not looking down on you for that. I'm just here to tell you we're all susceptible to that, to going through the motions. And just think, oh my goodness, I've got to go to church because that's what I was raised to do. And there's probably something you know, hopefully that I'll be blessed because I'm there versus not going, right? And you don't want to feel lazy after all and sleep in, do you, right? So like we, we all are susceptible to these things, but I think this passage is here to warn us away from that. That, that, that that today, through this passage, through John's writing, that we would see Jesus not as commonplace, but see Jesus as Lord. But there's another category of people that Jesus interacts with here that John wants us to see and this is the second class of people this is the people in this immediate narrative Uh, these are the people who don't reject Jesus but rather they receive Jesus for what he can do hey it's beneficial to have Jesus around after all think about it he came to a wedding not too long ago and we ran out of party juice or wine or whatever you want to call it. And, and, and what did he do? He turned the water into wine. This guy's a good guy to have around. Let's welcome him back. Let's receive him back among us. This is a good guy. This is something that we need. But even for those people, I think our passage today brings us forward in our faith. Not that we would just admire Jesus, or welcome him for what he can do for us. But rather that we would welcome him and admire him because he is Lord. And so some had casual familiarity and they were unable to see him. Some only wanted his, him there because of what he could provide them. These are the people that Jesus is speaking to. And these are the people that we are, right? We're not looking down on these people. We are confessing that we are these people. The second thing we'll look at is the place. And this this has a very prominent uh, position in this passage, right? This place. It, John the apostle was very intentional about reminding us that he's back in Cana, right? So he came again in verse 46, or once more he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. And then he ends this passage with reminding us that this is the second miraculous sign that Jesus had did. This is a very important thing for us as Bible readers. So why? I think, I think the apostle John really wants us to read the story of the wedding and this story side by side. There's a lot of similarities here and I love to show them to you. First of all, both were third day miracles, right? Um, Both of these things happen on the third day after Jesus had been somewhere, right? The miracle of the wedding occurred three days after Jesus had left the area of the lower Jordan River to return to Galilee. This miracle occurred three days after Jesus had determined to leave Judea and return to Cana. Both miracles contain an initial rebuke. The rebuke from the wedding account was to his own mother. He says, woman, My time has not yet come. And and here he rebukes the man and the people around. And we'll look at that a little bit further here in a second. Both of these miracles are done at a distance, right? Jesus in these miracles doesn't go and touch the water. He doesn't go and touch the boy, right? He speaks a word and change happens. The wine overflows and the son, the boy is healed. He completes these miracles at a distance, doing nothing more than speaking a word. Next. The servants, right? The servants who were there with the with the jars, they realized the water had been turned to wine. The servants back with the boy in this current account, they realized the boy had been healed at the seventh hour. And then finally, the last similarity that we see, each account c- concludes with a statement that certain persons who knew of the miracle believed, okay? And that's something that we'll look at further here in a moment. Mi- miracles in the ministry of Jesus were aimed at something. They were aimed at producing faith in the people who witnessed them. And we get to see that today. But there's also a glaring difference in these miracles, isn't there? One of these miracles happens at a party, at a wedding feast, a moment that we all enjoy, to go to a wedding, to celebrate together a good time, the best of times. The other miracle that happens It's at a child's deathbed, something we never hope to experience in this life, something that is so painful that you'll never gain casual familiarity with it. You never want this to happen. And I think the apostle wants us to know something particular about Jesus. One, a picture of sorrow, one, a picture of joy. And we'll all go through these things throughout our lives. But what John wants you to know is that if you invite Jesus into your joy, he makes them better. If you invite Jesus into your joys in life, your joys will be connected to glory forevermore. You will give praise and honor to God. And that never goes away. Jesus is there in your sorrows, at the deathbed, in in the pain of life, he is there. Listen to these words from one commentator. Jesus is more than equal to either of these occasions. He has a place in all circumstances. If, he invites, if we invite him to our times of innocent happiness, he will increase our joy. If we call on him in our times of sorrow, anxiety, and pain, he can bring consolation, comfort, and joy that is not of this world. Jesus is here for all of life's experiences, and he simply makes them better and and there are people in this room who are hurting there are people in this room who experience great joy Jesus is for you he makes all of these things better some of you may find it easier to worship God when things are going easy in life or good in life and we collectively get to learn from this man today and so now we're going to look at the person right? Who was this man in terms of his authority? Why had he come to Jesus? And how does Jesus respond to his request to heal his son? You know, the interesting thing is, as John is writing this, he's contrasting the woman at the well who had five husbands who had looked for earthly satisfaction uh, and hadn't found it. But she was a person who represented vulnerability and weakness in a sense. She had she didn't have authority in the culture, and she was born into a society that had no heritage. Now, this official was somebody who was the opposite, right? The, the Greek describes this man uh, by using this word basilikos, right? And, and this word in the Greek means that this man is actually connected to royalty. He was probably born into royalty within the Roman Empire. Um, no doubt, he was somebody who spent time in the courts of actually Herod Antipas. And if you know anything about Herod Antipas, he was the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. And so the man who serves in the courts of the dude who killed and beheaded John the Baptist is running to Jesus. He recognizes that something is outside of his control and the only place that he knows to go is To Jesus. He is a man of authority. He is a man of great power. He's a man who's achieved a lot of what we are all striving for in this world at times, and sometimes in our own selfishness and sinfulness. We strive for power, we strive for influence, we strive for wealth. We strive for these things, but what this man teaches us is that none of those things can deliver you or carry you outside of your need of Christ. There is no human self-sufficiency in the world, and we learn that through this official who comes from the king's courts and looks for Jesus. This is a man of authority and power, but why had he come? Well, he had come out of desperation. He had encountered a situation where he had no power to deliver himself. What, what he found himself in was a personal crisis. And I think it's helpful just to think about what a personal crisis is. I mean, we, we, we go through this life, we go through this world, and it's full of personal crises. A personal crisis is a circumstance when you realize that you no longer possess the power to deliver yourself from the present difficulty our pastors, we pray for people. We meet together monthly with our elders and and we have church members who come in who are sick, who you may never know it among you. You know, you you may never know the people among you who come into our elders meetings to, to request prayer because they've been dealing with some kind of chronic illness or they've been dealing with some kind of Situation that they, you know, maybe a mistake that they've made, and, and a circumstance that they've now found themselves in that they absolutely have no control over, and they need prayer. This is part of what we're here to do as a church family: is to lift one another, to encourage one another through these moments of of personal crisis. But this guy's son was dying; he was dying. And what the text doesn't tell you, but a map would tell you, is that this man walked 20 miles to find Jesus. Capernaum, where he came from, to where Jesus was today, was a distance of about 20 miles. Can you imagine trying to find somebody without, like, find my friends on your phone? Can you do that? I mean, like, can you imagine wandering, just with, like, you know, an old paper map and hearsay, about what's east, you know, north, south, east, and west, and trying to go into a town to find Jesus. But out of utter desperation, this man walked 20 miles in his Roman uniform to humbly bow himself to Jesus to go request help. He was in a personal crisis. He didn't know what to do, he didn't know how to deliver himself from this circumstance. And It can be said that you're either coming out of a crisis in life or you're going into one. Doesn't life a lot of times feel like just crisis management? You're putting out one fire or another, varying degrees of difficulty in all of these things, but you're always having to deal with stuff in this broken and fallen world that we live in. And so let's reflect just a minute on crises. Crises are, are painful, right? They expose our vulnerability. They they expose our temporality. They expose our lack of sovereignty. We would like to think that we have achieved such autonomy and such sovereignty over the details of our lives that we can actually control what happens. But then your child gets sick unto death. Or you have a wreck. Or your loved one is sick. And you're utterly left. To, you're exposed. You're, the vulnerability or, or the, the, the sovereignty that you thought you had achieved is now stripped away. And all you, are, all you have is left with a cry to God. God, deliver me. God, help me. Heal my son. Deliver me from this circumstance. I know you can do it. Deliver me from these things. They're painful Moments They remind us in the deepest way that things are not right in this world. We are born into a world where pain and suffering has been the result of sin. This is the difficult life that we live in. But secondly, crises can be helpful. Our brother James in James 1, 2 through 4 says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, Four, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In God's providence and in God's sovereignty, as we move forward in faithfulness through the difficult and hard times of life, it produces something. It produces a staunch faith, a good faith, a refined faith that is willing and ready to stand the test of difficulty. This is one of the good things. The Bible is a book about suffering. You ever thought about that? The Bible is a book about suffering. In Genesis chapter three, so two chapters into the whole Bible, we are introduced to pain and suffering. So much so that in chapters four and five, brothers are killing brothers. and, And then God in Genesis chapter six, hits a reset button on the world through death and pain. This is a book about suffering. There are so many psalms about suffering. The book of Job is all about a man's suffering. The Bible, through suffering, offers hope, however. Even the Lord himself, as we'll see in a minute, he goes, he comes, and he suffers, and he offers hope to us. But the Bible never looks down on suffering. The Bible never mocks the sufferer's pain. It never turns a deaf ear to the cries of those in pain. And it never condemns those who suffer in their struggle. Rather, it presents the sufferer a God who understands, who cares, and who invites us to come to him for help and who promises to one day end all suffering forevermore. That is our hope. Our hope is not that we'll live in this life with total convenience and comfort and security. Our hope is that God offers deliverance that God offers resurrection from these difficulties in this pain, this is what this man needs to hear. C.S. Lewis famously said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. God whispers to us in our pleasures. Pleasures are good. I want you to be happy. I want you to have... A life full of pleasure and joy that you give God honor and praise and glory for. That's what I want pastorally. That's what we want for one another. But he speaks in our conscience and he shouts in our pain. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are going through pain right now and difficulty, you found yourselves in circumstances that you cannot control. God is speaking to you. The question is this are we listening? Are we listening? Where are we turning when we go through these hard times? Do we turn to God with a stone cold heart and fuss at him for not getting in line with our plans? Or do we humbly submit ourselves to the Lord who one day offers full and total deliverance from this painful life? God is teaching us through the crises of our lives. But crises are also inevitable we, saw, we see this in, in Job chapter 5. This is just an interesting verse. In, in verses 6 and 7 we read this, for Affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but a man is born into trouble. Okay? This is Job's experience, right? his inspired experience written down for us. that We are born into these things. We, we had the opportunity to, to pray for one of our church members who is going through a hard time um, this, this past week. And, um, and he said something after we prayed for him, or maybe it was before we prayed for him, and I just was like, this is a good one-liner. My mind is simple enough that I appreciate a good one-liner. You get two, three sentences in anything, I'm probably gonna forget it. But you give me a good one-liner, I can handle it. And he said this, he, he's gone through a, a horrible year Two years, three years. He's been, this brother has been through it. And he said this to us to encourage the elders. He, we were there to pray for him. And he said this to us. He said, suffering is inevitable, but misery is optional. Suffering is inevitable, but misery is optional. Um, when you have this view that this official had of Jesus, the, the pain and difficulty of your life, sure, it'll be there, but there's a way through it within, in, in without misery. There's actually a way the Bible talks about it, that you can move through pain and suffering joyfully, that you, with confidence, yes, it's painful, but with confidence, they're inevitable. But also crises often represent physical symbols of, natu- of supernatural realities Do you realize that God has built physical things all around us that represent greater supernatural things? Think about the seasons. Who's ready for spring in the room? I'm ready for spring. I know Nathan Dieter, your hand shot up. This guy's running. It's a cold outside. He's like, I'm ready for it to be warm. Are you faster when it's warm? Of course you are. You get spring in your step, right? We're longing for spring around here, right? Even though it's like winter and it's like going to be 52 degrees today and sunny, you know, but we're we're just so eager for spring. The seasonal changes, have you thought about them? Why are they as they are? What are they telling us except that there is new birth in the spring, that there's flourishing in the summer, that there's decline in the fall and death in the winter? God has built the story of creation to reflect something that is supernaturally true. That physically true of us that we are born that we grow that we flourish that we decline and that we die you know you go through that cycle every year think about this God has built these things into the world to remind you of something that is ultimate Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4 it speaks of the stars as representing the angels and and some even representing the fallen angels and so when you go out um, and on a clear night, not in Atlanta, of course, but you're out in the country on a clear night, and you look up to the stars. Of course, all glory should be your response to that. It's amazing, but Revelation reminds us. The Apostle John in Revelation reminds us that that these stars are there to remind you that there are greater realities, that there are angels in the world, and furthermore, that there are demons in the world, the fallen angels as it talks about this is God has built this world in such a way that the details of it communicate his story that communicates his glory and we're reminded of this and we've got a slide for this in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places this is This is an interesting verse, right? Uh, If you're like me, you move throughout your life rarely reflecting on the fact that we live in a world that is held captive by spiritual forces, right? That God, by his spirit, lives within us, but we're living in this age and in this world where the prince of the power of the air is ruling, seeking to steal, kill, kill, and destroy. That we live in this kind of... Of world, there are greater realities going on. Ironically, and I find I find this very interesting too. Ephesians chapter six. You know what Paul talks about to the church just before this? Husbands love your wives; wives respect your husbands; kids obey your parents. So, like when your kid is disobeying you in the home, which happens to us from time to time, you know, and we're learning how to parent through it, it. What what the apostle Paul wants you to know is this: child is not just not getting it. This child is actually influenced by these greater spiritual realities and that he has placed you there as a Christian parent to expose that, to teach them the way of Christ by the word of Christ. That That is what God has put you in their life for. And when your husband responds to you in anger, the Apostle Paul wants you to know it's not just your husband, right? He's being influenced by greater spiritual realities. So don't just help lead him to repentance. Don't respond to his anger with more anger, right? Because then you're being influenced by these greater spiritual realities. Rather, by God's grace, help lead him to repentance. Help him see that he's not living according to the way of Christ. And in doing so, we're pointing one another forward. These, these greater spiritual realities are reflected in the very details of our lives. And in the very same way, physical death is a reminder of spiritual death when God prescribed the curse of death it was to remind us when he prescribed the curse of physical death it was to remind us that we are spiritually bankrupt and dead before God why is death so painful why does it never become comfortable because it reflects a reality that we're separated from God it'll never be comfortable this side of the new heavens and new earth, and it won't exist on the other side of the new heavens and the new earth. And this is actually why I really admire the faith of this man. You know, if you're physically sick, you go to a doctor, right? If, if one of my children got sick unto death, you know what I would do? I would raid pharmacies. You know, I would, I would, I would pull out my Google doctor. Who pulls out the Google doctor? You, you know, you, you have some kind of symptom and you Google it and it's like, oh my gosh, I might not have long to live now. You know, I, I would pull out the, the Google doctor and I would figure out what is the medication that I need to find and I would do anything to get my son or my daughters to the right doctor at the right time to help them in their physical condition. And don't you think this man had access to such things? The medicine cabinet in the Roman Empire, you know, in the, in the Roman uh, royalty was probably pretty thick, right? They, they probably had anecdotes. They probably had things to address the physical ailments of this world. They probably had access to the best doctors in all of the empire, lest one of the royal people get sick. But what does this man do? His son is physically sick, but he goes 20 miles. He walks over 20 miles to find this man who had just started his public ministry who had turned water into wine. It's because I think that this man and this faith that I admire knew that this death was a physical representation of this representation of this spiritual reality and that Jesus alone had the power to change both. And so what did this man do? This man, he humbled himself before God, right? The God of the world, Jesus, he humbled himself and he cried out for help. He didn't yell at him and say, Jesus, you carpenter's son, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I've walked all this distance to be here, to ask you this one thing? I direct people to do what they want, or what I want all the time. What are you thinking? Why don't you just submit to what I'm asking you? But rather, the official in verse 49 says, What? Sir, sir, come down before my child dies. Some of us make demands. On God right some of us are the kind of people who in our weak faith we use God to achieve our means but this man in his desperation in his humility he was in the right posture to receive help from our Lord and so what does this look like in our lives are, are we the kind of people who are looking for, spirit or for physical solutions to spiritual longings? Are, are we trying to feel and fill the longings of our heart with things at the earthly level? Do, do we think that we have or will achieve something when we have X number of do- dollars in our bank account? When we have X number, this amount of influence? Are we seeking to, to meet spiritual needs With physical things. But how does Jesus respond to this man's requests? He says this in verse 48, "...unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe." Now, the interesting thing about his response here is that in the Greek, you can tell that this you, right, when he's saying, "...unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe." Of course, he's probably speaking to the man in front of him, but there's probably a crowd around. We know that Greek word there is plural, right? In the English, you don't know. You can use you to mean you, or you can say you to mean you, right? This is kind of how the Greek, this is Southerners got smart and they said y'all, right? We're going to fix this confusion. We're going to fix this problem. And y'all could be an appropriate translation here. But he's speaking to this man, but he's also speaking to the people around. I don't think this man is condemning this official for his faith. I I think what Jesus is saying is this man is here in desperation and humility. And you, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Speaking to the crowd around him. But think about it. it. It did not matter. When Jesus said, go and your son will live, which is his response, after that go your son will live it did not matter what kind of virus was ravaging this son's body right it it did not matter what kind of physical condition he was in in that moment when Jesus says go your son will live it was the surest thing in the world that this son would continue to live this speaks to the power of of the Word of Christ keep in mind Colossians 1 16 through 17 says this, for in him, speaking of Christ, all things are created, things in heaven on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him, all things hold together. This official went to the one who actually controlled the cells in this little guy's body to be healed. And as soon as Jesus said it, by his word, certainly it would happen. But what is the purpose of this? I think the ultimate purpose of the purpose of this um, is found in this man's response, right? So when, when he says, Sir, please come down for the second time, please come down and heal my son, and Jesus says, Go, your son will surely live. When the man doesn't say a word to Jesus, he doesn't say, Well, no, 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 come on, don't you get what I'm saying? Come on. When he doesn't say a word, he just moves forward in faith, trusting in Christ at his word, I think it's in that moment where this this man's faith grows from appreciating Christ for his power to appreciating Christ for his person. He sees through the power of God to the very person of God, and he trusts him with his own son's life. But there are a few other reasons that we'll just quickly hit that this miracle is provided for us to say. Why this sign? You know, John, in, in, at the end of, of, of the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, um, he, he writes this Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you may have life in his name. There are many, many things that Jesus did that fall outside of the narratives that we have written for us. But these are provided to us to tell us something specific about God. And I think the first thing we need to know is that in the story, God is seeking to display the power of the Messiah, the power of Christ, to show that he's powerful over death. The thing that we all fear, the thing that we all will go through, the thing that is as sure as your life, it is your death, that Christ has power over it. That's our hope today, that that the physical death that represents the spiritual death that we are born into can be remedied only by Christ and his word. The second thing is to display the grace of Christ. Think about it. What had Christ to do with the son? Had he ever met him? Probably not. Will he ever meet him? I don't know. Probably not. And yet, because of this man's humble desperation, Christ chooses to heal him he's showing great grace and this is the same kind of grace that he offers to me and to you when you come to Christ in desperation when you come to Christ in humility by the way that is the only way to come to Christ right You don't come to Christ in your pride. You don't come to Christ with your credentials. You come to Christ as a broken person. It is the only way into Christianity. As Jason says a lot, Christianity is the only club that you have to have a bad resume to get into. It's the only one. It's the only club that you gotta have a bad resume to get into, and this is for us, that we would be able to see quite clearly the grace of Christ and his power over death. And ultimately, it is to provoke belief in us. Like I said, this man was finally seeing through the power of Christ to the very person of Christ. Uh, Many of us can read this story and and believe that the greatest miracle here was that the son continued to live, right? Uh, But the interesting thing about this son is that he died. One day he died, right? He He was healed from this present circumstance, but one day he died. And the official, you know what he did? He died. He, he returned to dust. The sun, he is dust. And he too, just like us, await a physical resurrection, right? He, he too longs for that. But the greatest miracle in this text is what's found at the end your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. God, through this miracle, had gifted belief to this family. These miracles are awesome. But our hope today is not that we will receive temporary deliverance from our physical difficulties, but ultimately that we would believe. Um, many of you know the, the, the fact that, that, you know, I'm one of nine children. I've got seven adopted siblings. Um, my family, you know, my parents. Whenever I was 15 years old, um, you know, we boarded a plane to go to China uh, to 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 go um, bring our first little, little sibling home. It was a really awesome thing. But you know, like my dad was so nervous, right? This was after 9/11. He had never, nobody in my family had ever gotten on a plane, right? We, we might've been able to read the data and say, you know, it's safer to fly on a plane than it is to drive a car, right? Statistically speaking, the data, right? It, it tells you, you should be comfortable in this experience. You should have seen this strong backed man nervously boarding this, this airplane, right? It, it's one thing to look at an airplane and say, that thing will fly. It's another thing to get on the airplane and this is what our brother Ed Butler at our teaching meeting reminded us of. You know, true belief is not in what you intellectually think. True belief is not in what you verbally say. True belief is actually in how you live. And and Jason Byers reminded us in our teaching meeting that true belief is evidenced when you actually begin to live as if what you believe is actually true. True belief is determined in how you live, you know how you're living. You you know if you're trusting in Christ and the good and the bad. This story for you and for me is a reminder to press forward in our faith. If we are without faith, to trust in Christ, if we are weak in faith, that Christ through this story would grow our faith and see his power and his grace and his call to Belief, God's inviting all of us to see and appreciate his power, but to see afresh the grace-filled character of the person of Christ, the all-powerful, the ever-gracious, and the only one who deserves our full faith and our trust. But Jesus, ironically, does something interesting, right? He goes to the cross. The thing that you and I fear the most and the thing that you and I will all experience, Jesus himself, Though he had the power over death and sickness and pain, he submitted himself to it that we may be delivered from it through his resurrection. And, and there's a gift that God gives to us called communion that we, that we get to participate in. And so our deacons are going to uh, walk and, and, and grab the elements, and we'll take communion here uh, in just a moment. But communion is a gift. It's a reminder of the broken flesh of Christ, it's a reminder of the spilt blood of Christ on our behalf, and communion is for the saints, right? Um, this this ordinance, just like baptism, is a gift for those who are trusting in Christ. And so, if you're here today and you're like, I heard this, and I'm not really trusting in Jesus, as the deacons kind of walk by, just feel free to make known to them that you're not going to take communion, that you're just going to let the elements pass by. That is okay. That is not, that should not be embarrassing. That should not be anything. You should not feel inordinate judgment for that. You should feel the call of the elements passing by you. However, we will say that, but this is a high moment for God's saints. And as they pass and as Jordan and uh, the band kind of plays, it is my prayer that you will enter into a time of gratefulness God, to God that you would thank him for his provision for you and in a moment we will take these elements together uh, afterwards and we'll we'll sing and worship the Lord let me pray as we enter into this moment Heavenly Father um, we're grateful to you we're grateful for this passage we thank you for the power of Christ that delivers us from life's difficulties but God ultimately we are grateful for the power of Christ that breaks the chains of our bondage spiritually, uh, that we can be brought into communion and fellowship with you once again, and that we can participate in worship services, singing praise and and giving you honor and glory, and that we can participate in communion to reflect uh, the fact that we are trusting in the broken body and the spilt blood of Christ to carry us forward to a new day. To a day when you will make all things new. We pray, God, that as we do this, that you will be honored in Jesus' name. Amen.